It is kind of bad, I guess, but they are fighting communism. So like, uh, basically it was a strategic Cold War ally. So every time it would get brought up about the civil rights issues in South Africa, whether it was from Truman all the way to Reagan, they would be like, yeah, it is kind of extreme over there. And the U.S. might have like economic sanctions at one point or another, but they were not very strong. And, and at the same time, U.S. companies would be heavily invested in South Africa. So like America was always... They talked about, like Reagan said, we need their minerals. So he didn't care. Snoo Mathers with my motherfuckers ass. You want to know how to rhyme? You better learn how to add. It's mathematics. Mighty most definitely. It's simple mathematics. Check it out. I'll revolve around science. What are we talking about here? Peace, peace, peace. Welcome to another episode of Wise Dome. Today I got my brother, man. He's a great thinker, great um scholar you know what i'm saying he's also a law school student man um bibliophile got tons of books he's been on the show before slank i appreciate you for coming back bro thanks for having me on no doubt no doubt um once again congrats on on law school and everything with that man that's definitely a great look um i wanted to bring you on though to have a conversation about uh booker t washington and uh w.e.b du bois and the you know, conflict, I would say, or point of contention that they had as far as the future of Black people. And um, so first, um, Booker T. Washington, you know, most uh, people that, you know, study our history in these spaces see him as an assimilationist. Um, how would you describe Booker T. Washington's philosophy? Yeah, I would definitely say, I agree with like the assimilationist or accommodationist uh, char characterization of him. Uh, he's definitely a conservative, uh, but I still at the same time think that out of the time period he was in, like there's still like a lot of positive to get from Booker T's uh, philosophy and whatnot, like the founding of the Ski Institute, which still exists today, and all the different uh, Black people and thinkers and leaders that have been trained up there. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, he was definitely, he was a, I've heard him described as like a really good politician, even though he would discourage uh like participation in politics he was uh like a chief black advisor to several presidents roosevelt and taft i believe and uh he was always uh like trying to maneuver and make deals and things to get funding for for different projects and even if uh the funding came with like like he, he was really close to like Andrew Carnegie and different like industrialists and whatnot who would give him a lot of money to do different projects. And they would want it though to be within limits. You know what I mean? They didn't want it to be like radical or anything. And he, he knew how to both like make white people like feel like they was hearing what they wanted to hear and also, uh, you know, help black people within within limits though is, is what I would say. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great way of putting it because, you know, a lot of times, when we look at these, uh, you know, freedom fighters and people in our history that, you know, have, I guess, complex and layered um, aspects to the work that they did, it's easy to kind of paint it with one brush, but there's a lot of nuances that go with these stories and, you know, might not be anybody more nuanced than Booker T. Washington at, at, the, at that time. Um, you know, wasn't, uh, didn't Marcus Garvey, um, you know, say that Booker T. Washington was somebody that he looked up to? Yeah, I, I believe he he was, uh, he attempted to even meet with him, but I, I think that Booker T. passed like shortly before he arrived uh, in America to see him or something like that. And I also know Elijah Muhammad was very, uh, very, he loved Booker T. Washington, and like he, he said that uh, what he did at Tuskegee was like a model for a lot of what he was trying to do with uh, like self help and black empowerment and uh, self reliance and whatnot. Wow, see, I, I never, I'd never heard that, and see that you know, for people like you know Marcus Garvey and Elijah Muhammad to be able to find inspiration in your works, you have to be doing something right. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. In his uh, Atlanta Compromise speech, he talked about us not being agitators and, you know, working within the system until the world was ready for equality. And you mentioned that, you know, he he knew Carnegie and he was very skilled at 
getting white getting money from white people you know what i mean do you think like speeches like that like you know that was his that was the sentiment that he really believed or was he pretty much you know playing the game and uh, attempting to finesse white america out of uh funding him funding the projects that he was working on like tuskegee and uh, and other things i think uh i think he definitely did believe like industrial like training and things like that were the, the utmost importance of the time. But uh, at the same time, I don't think he was completely like against participation in politics, for instance, because he, he was one of the most like political, politically powerful black men in the country at the time and was himself. Like he might tell people like, oh, don't worry about voting and whatnot, but he was over there, you know, hmm. politicking with presidents and people like that. And also uh, I've read, I've read in a couple places that behind the scenes, like secretly, he was funding and like supporting different uh, like civil rights initiatives and things like that, that he didn't want to publicly put his name onto because it might mm -hmm. hurt his white funding and things like that. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think he was in a way playing a game to try to get the money to like make this institute and then uh, empower black people in the best way he thought that was possible at the time. Uh, but yeah, there was definitely like two, I think, Supreme Court cases of like sharecroppers that were trapped in like a debt peonage kind of system. Like their uh, employers are trying to like uh, keep them like forever on the plantation and stuff like that. And he, uh, he, he funded some of the like law defenses. And I think some cases went all the way to Supreme Court that were like secretly backed by Booker T. Washington. Wow. See, that's the stuff that we don't hear about whenever we think of Booker T. Washington. If I feel like in a lot of cases, uh, white academia kind of paints, kind of does the same thing with Booker T. Washington that they do with MLK. You know what I mean? Um, they give us the version of them that they, and the narrative of him that they like to tell. Would you say that there's any truth to that? Yeah, I, I would say a similar phenomenon, but at the same time, there also is a lot of things I disagree with on Booker T. Washington, too. So, like, whereas I feel like white academia it takes MLK and just completely, like, distorts it and sanitizes it, uh, I feel like they emphasize those accommodations, things of Booker T., uh, kind of because that, like, made them feel comfortable and whatnot. So it's made, he's like a somebody to uphold in that sense. But uh, he also... I've read that he was involved with like spying on other black organizations and mm -hmm. things like that that didn't necessarily agree with him. Mm -hmm. Like uh, Monroe Trotter, for instance, was a very uh, a big leader, black leader in those times too, and he was completely opposed to like Booker T's like state of politics uh, stance and everything else like that. And even when Booker T came to speak for the the National Negro Business Council, I think that was the name of the, the organization uh, in Boston in 1903. Monroe Trotter like protested it at the at mm. the at the event and he was like basically like it's all we have to expect under Booker T's leadership like you know getting lynched and stuff like that and he's he had a big agitation at the event Booker T had him arrested and then wow. Booker T people like made sure that the police gave him a, a like I think he got like a 30-day sentence for just protesting at the Booker T convention and uh and afterwards or maybe even before that Booker T sent like people to infiltrate Monroe Trotter's organization and, and, uh, and things like that. So he was like those kind of things. I don't necessarily agree with on Booker T. Washington because I was, I, I feel that Monroe Trotter, uh, you know, I mean, even if a disagreement of ideas, you don't need to like infiltrate somebody else's organization and stuff like that. Right. Uh, but yeah, so it's like, like you said, he was a very complicated dude, but like at, this was only a couple of generations out of slavery. So I feel mm -hmm. like he was trying to, come up with the best way to advance black people that he thought was possible, especially coming out of, uh, I think he was from Virginia, but he Tuskegee Institute in Alabama and everything. You couldn't really, uh, yeah, it was hard to uh, yeah. be like super radical, like a lot of people in the North were, I guess. Yeah, no, I, I agree hundred percent. And I think that's the context that we all have to remember is that, you know, he was, he was, freed from slavery, I think around the time he made it might have been seven or eight years old, living in West Virginia and, you know, walked in the cold in the rain to Virginia to go to Hampton, you know, yeah. um, that's somebody that's obviously dedicated to 
uh, you know, striving to educate himself and do something for his people, even though, like you said, you know, some things were, you know, we can look back on and say, yeah, I don't, I don't really agree with that. You know, one of the things I think is, you know, like I, I want to say that even at one time, you know, Ida B. Wells spoke out uh, against him because he seemed to want to, you know, not put his name or and associate his name with hers due to the fact that she was, you know, hardcore and fighting uh, for anti-lynching laws and bringing lynching uh, to the forefront. And so I definitely understand. Um, and so the second part of that would be, how would you describe W.E.B. Du Bois' stance on the future, uh, you know, of, of Black America at that time? And uh, like, just with how Washington was like, is coming out of like, just at a couple decades after slavery and whatnot, Du Bois' stance at that time was also reflective of like a certain time period. Mm -hmm. And so at that time he was with the, with like the talented 10th idea and everything. Mm -hmm. And whereas Booker T was like, don't worry about the voting right now. Don't worry about like fighting against segregation and, uh, and just focus on like industrial education you know, building up farms and like uh, that kind of thing. Du Bois was more at that time. He felt that uh, like the black leadership class or whatever, like uh, the minority of like college educated, I guess, like black people at the time should should be uh, in a leadership position. And like one of his critiques of Washington was that uh, even an institute like Tuskegee needed a lot of college trained uh Black people and stuff like that, or who would be in Du Bois's talented tense category at the time to come and like be the teachers and educators at Tuskegee, and so that was one of the biggest employers of those kind of uh, that class of people at the time. <clears throat> and uh, and so Du Bois was more pushing for like with Monroe Trotter for like immediate like voting rights uh, for like uh, more participation in politics and. Uh, like fighting against the segregationist policies and things like that, whereas Booker T. Washington was willing to more accommodate with those people and focus on the other, just the industrial side of it. And uh, yeah, I, I know at one point, Booker T. Washington tried to get Du Bois to teach at Tuskegee even. So like they, they weren't always like at each other like that, but it was in a 1903, I think it so was a black folk, Du Bois first put up like a little critique of kind of Washington's stance. And then after that Monroe Trotter incident where he got arrested at the speech, Du Bois like didn't like how uh, Monroe Trotter was being treated. And that's when you really got more into like the debate with Booker T. Washington about the strategies and things. Right, right, right. And do you, um, and so like when we think of like the talented tent, you know, a lot of people may begin to think of, you know, stuff like the Boule and the Jack and Jill societies and, you know, all of that kind of thing. Would you say like that, Talented Tenth idea was one of the things that kind of birthed that, you know, segment of Black people who were well-to-do and felt like they uh, would speak for the rest and knew what was best for the rest of the Black community? No, yeah, definitely. And, uh, and even Du Bois, like, later, like, the thing about Du Bois, he lived so long, his ideology, like, went through a lot of different periods and changed mm -hmm. a whole lot. So I think in, like, Sometime in the 40s, he had wrote a speech where he kind of denounced the talented 10th ideology that he had been with before, basically saying that these people that he thought were going to like, once they got their college education, were going to like help for the best interests of black people became very self-interested. And like uh, like the black bourgeoisie that uh, E. Franklin Frazier talks about in his book, just more interested in uh, just individual gains and being able to like, you know, I don't know, just get rich, I guess, and not really caring about the majority of Black people. So even Du Bois kind of turned against his talented 10th uh, ideology later on and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Um, and for, like, if we were going to, I guess, in, in uh, you know, simple terms where if we could, I guess, sum up a complex uh, situation, um, what would you say were the major points of contention between Du Bois and uh, Booker T. Washington? Uh, like I said, like 
just to focus on what type of education was best and uh, like whereas Booker T was more for focusing on industrial trade education, things like that. Du Bois felt that the time at that point was right for like a leadership, uh, like the educated black people within the community to, to take a leadership role and fight for civil uh, rights and voting rights and things like that. And that would be the way toward uh, better status in, in America for black people. Whereas, so basically just, uh, they both wanted like better opportunities for black people, but Washington was more like, we need to like just accept how it is and try to like fit in where where we can while like while we're here, whereas Du Bois was like trying to more change the uh, like the way society worked like more immediately, I guess. Right, right. Where, where would you say um, around this time, uh, where would you say that, you know, I guess Carter G. Woodson, like where would you say that he kind of fit as far as what he, I guess with the ideologies of um, Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois at that time, uh, what was Carter G. Woodson saying? You know, because he obviously he wrote the book that we all know now, um, Miseducation of the Negro. Uh, I mean, I would have to go back and like look closer at his position, specifically on the Du Bois first Washington controversy. I'm not really sure, yeah. like, on that. For sure, for sure. Um, and so, uh, I've seen some black scholars say that you know Booker T. Washington is like he can't be redeemed um, mm -hmm. due to the fact of like you some of the instances that you point out as far as, you know, spying on other black organizations um, at that time, would you, would you say that he can't be redeemed or do you kind of just chalk it up as, you know, around that time, it was obviously uh, a terrible time to be black in America. Um, Booker T. Washington had, had experienced slavery. Um, we, are, we were just really up from slavery. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, like what would what would you say? Uh, no, I wouldn't say he's irredeemable at all. Like I said, Elijah Muhammad found a lot of inspiration in him, and and uh, and also like I, like when people same thing with like Garvey versus Du Bois. Some people will be like, "Oh, these two black leaders had beef like a hundred years ago, so I'm Team Garvey and like mm -hmm. <laughs> like throw out everything Du Bois said, or I'm Team Du Bois and I'll throw everything Garvey said." I feel like you can learn a lot from all these people and uh you got to look at the context of things and like take the good and, you know, leave the things that don't work. So like with, uh, like I said, with things like building the Institute, like Tuskegee that still exists today, that's definitely something we could look to and, uh, and learn from. And yeah, I don't think, I think both, both of them had ideas. And, and like I said, with Du Bois, he grew past a lot of even the ideas he had then. So there's all like, we can learn from stuff he was thinking then and things he progressed later. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, I think that's the whole point, you know, is for us to be able to look back and take what was useful and can be applied now. You know what I mean? Um, a lot of times people kind of kind of look at it like it's like a Tupac and Biggie situation or something. You know what I mean? Like like if you're a fan of one, you can't like the other, you know, but when they're both obviously make great music. And so I, I understand, man, that's that's kind of that's how I see it as well. And plus, it's hard for me to look at somebody who has done that much, who experienced um, some of the worst atrocities in American history and look at them with any type of disdain. You know what I mean? Um, even if I don't agree with everything, it's just, I'm just not really able to do that because I understand like it's a totally different time from now, even though we definitely face white supremacy and oppression. Um, it wasn't physical slavery. You know what I mean? And yeah. so I think we kind of got to understand sometimes that, you know, it's a, it was a totally different time. Um, another thing that I've seen you build on, build on that I kind of wanted to uh, talk with you about was um, apartheid in South Africa. Mm -hmm. um, for what, okay, so we'll start simple. What was apartheid in South Africa? Uh, basically like a system where the minority of like European settlers <clears throat> controlled all the the resources, the land, everything else, and uh, 
pushed like the the majority of African native people into like small enclaves or a Bantu stands and uh, kind of controlled like their labor, everything like would ship in migrant workers from neighboring African countries that they also had control over to, to work in the mines, to extract resources. It was, it was basically just a system of white domination mm. uh, in South Africa, like similar to like a Jim Crow system in, uh, in America, except it was imposed on the people where they was from versus like people brought over to another place and, uh, and put in well, that system. For people that don't know, where, where were these colonizers from? Uh, the first... The first group of like colonizers to come in from Europe to South Africa would have been in like 1652, I believe, with Jan van Riebeek or something. I don't even know. Some Dutch name. They was from uh, the Netherlands mm -hmm. up in Europe. And uh, so there was a, a heavy influence of Dutch settlers and the Dutch East India Company was really big at this time. One of the first like multinational capitalist companies uh, was founded on like slavery and colonization and everything. So they was down there. Uh, I think the first people they encountered uh, were like the the Khoi and the San people down in South Africa. So like early on from the beginning, there was like uh, Dutch versus uh, Khoi wars early on in like the 1650s with uh, <clears throat> the Dutch trying to like create farms and steal cattle and things like that. And, uh, and then later on, the British came as well. And then it was almost like a, two different white groups, Dutch and British fighting each other over land that didn't belong to neither one of them. Right. And uh, both of them treating black people bad. Whereas the, the, and then by like the forties, the 1940s is when like apartheid itself, like got systematized. It's like a system. And that's when the national party, which is uh, mostly the Dutch, or as they call themselves down there, the Afrikaners, they had a whole like Dutch spinoff language called Afrikaans that they speak. Uh, they got victory in 1948. I think the dude was named Milan. They led the National Party. <clears throat> they introduced the system of apartheid, or like how they called it, boss cop. It was like a, mm. it's like a Dutch word for like being the boss, basically. Like you got to refer to the white man as the boss and shit like that. And then the the English version, the United Party, was like a a slightly less intense version of the same thing called like trusteeship, where they felt like white people needed to look over black people. So both white people down there, both groups, the Dutch and the British, who fought wars with each other down there was united when it came to like oppressing black people. They just had little different strategies to do it and whatnot. And so what do you think that says like for these two groups of colonizers um, to be from two different countries, right? But come to South, come to South Africa and view in both in both nations view the native South Africans as less than human. Like what what does that say about the perception of colonizers whenever they would, you know, come to these places? And in this case, South Africa. Uh, I mean, they just seen they like their culture from for the last hundred years. I mean, even uh like the whole rise of capitalism and everything, all these countries were fighting with each other, trying to like who could steal the most slaves, who could, you know, take over the most land. It was like a, like a game where they say, all, where they saw all other people as non-human or lesser than. And so, uh, yeah, they, they just came straight in and yeah, I don't know. It was, it's, it's fucked up. Like, I don't know. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I mean, it's like the pursuit of, of wealth, right. Mm -hmm. And seeing us as a, either a way, that they can capitalize, you know, on our physical labor or our land, you know, mm -hmm. they obviously wouldn't let anything get in their way in order to gain that wealth. And like, before we go in, in more of um, apartheid, isn't uh, like, what, isn't Elon Musk, wasn't his family like, like mm -hmm. own, didn't they own a mine down there? Like, would he be considered an Afrikaner? Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure his family is, I don't think they're English. So I, I mean, I would assume they're Afrikaner. I know that the, he's from uh, South Africa and Musk. I don't know if that's an English name or Dutch name, but I know his dad's name, Harold Musk. Mm -hmm. That sounds kind of like Dutch. I don't know. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but they, yeah, they had a, they had a like, an emerald mind in 
Zambia, I want to say, or like one of the neighboring countries. Mm-hmm. And they were, uh, that was like where his wealth came from. Like Elon Musk, as a kid, went to like apartheid boarding schools. Wow. Uh, was very like well off and things in South Africa due to his dad's wealth off of controlling different mines and things down there. So, yeah. And then so now uh, he's like still one of the richest. So, like, one of the richest people in America now is like, descended from that legacy and everything and uh and, and even like south africa has like the most diamonds like it wasn't just emeralds in zambia like they got the most diamonds like the oppenheimer family mm. uh, it's one of the early like they i think they're british but they came down to south africa uh mm. Brit, they're jewish people from britain and they came down and they have they still have control over the uh, like the diamond trade in south africa where they would forced African laborers from Mozambique, from South Africa, all over the place on trains to come down and like work for nothing all day so they could get the diamonds up. Not And not to get too sidetracked, but did you see when, I don't know, it was like uh, somebody in politics I, or somebody running for some office, I don't know if it was like some local office, but they, they uh, on social media, they said uh, uh, something about Elon Musk being an African American, right, and got every got everybody. Like, what was your thoughts whenever you saw that? I mean, I've seen people do that before. Try to say like he's from Africa and he's in America, so he's technically. In, but like <laughs> during apartheid, like the and not only in South Africa and uh, in Zimbabwe too, in Namibia, the white settler groups, no matter if they were English, Dutch, German, whatever made it a point like the signs would be like Europeans only mm. like like they wanted everybody to know we're not Africans from Africa we're like European people that came down here and now live in Africa so for them to now be like oh it, like if, I don't know if Elon Musk actually calls himself African American but like if he does <laughs> that's like that's pretty dumb for real. I don't know <laughs> right right I agree and you know that's and like you said they made a specific point to make a distinction between themselves and the native uh and the native africans and but you know that also goes to show too that they will adjust what they identify as whenever it's a bit whenever it's beneficial to them you know what i mean um like there's a fluidity with how they see themselves um you know they'll they'll add they'll add certain groups that are clearly not caucasian but they'll add them to their you know uh whenever they come over here uh for whatever reasons that uh, suit them um but what i wanted to ask you what was america's stance especially in the beginning like when it came to apartheid in south africa so like like i said the uh like the official enshrining of apartheid was about like 1948. I think in 36, they had like expunged in in, Af- in South Africa, the last black people from the voter rolls. Mm-hmm. So after that, it kind of was like a couple years until like it officially became like legalized. But uh, America early on, so in like 48, that's right after the second world war, uh, directly after the second world war, America switched priorities from like, they weren't worried about denazifying shit anymore. They incorporated all the Nazis, Operation Paperclip, yeah. brought in scientists. And so, like, their main goal after the Second World War was, like, enemy number one is uh, the Soviet Union, Cold War and everything. So, <clears throat> whereas, uh, I think Truman was the president at the time, whereas he would have been, uh, I, I, I don't know, like, his, I mean, he's probably a racist, he's a racist, probably, he's a white dude, American right, president. Right. But, so, like, he's seen... He, he put, he seen South Africa, what they were doing with apartheid, and was like, yeah, we do, it is kind of bad, I guess, but they are fighting communism. So, like, uh, basically, it was a strategic Cold War ally. So every time it would get brought up about the civil rights issues in South Africa, whether it was from Truman all the way to Reagan, they would be like, yeah, it is kind of extreme over there. And the U.S. might have, like, economic sanctions at one point or another, but they were not very strong and and at the same time u.s companies would be heavily invested in south africa so like america was always they talked about like reagan said we need their minerals so he didn't care that it was apartheid none of the presidents really cared that it was apartheid they just needed the minerals so and the best way to get the minerals was having a friendly white nation to give it to them type shit so 
America was always like supportive of apartheid pretty much, even if they might in the UN like act like, oh, we don't really agree with it, but they would they would do a thing where like, who are we to interfere with how another country, you know, runs their affairs and shit like that. They would do some shit like that, basically. Right. And that's crazy because they're known to interfere in everybody's, uh, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, exactly. Um, what about, I, I want to say I read before that, like, Israel at one time was like, they were like, came out and stated that they were, you know, pro apartheid, like in South Africa. Like, had you, have you read anything like that? Yeah. Uh, the, uh, so, like, during the Second World War, a lot of the Afrikaner nationalists in South Africa were interned by the British and put in jail because they were Nazi sympathizers. And the British didn't want, like, uh, Nazi-friendly people in South Africa, like, blowing up British strategic things or something like that. Mm-hmm. So they put a whole bunch of people in in prison for, like, being pro-Nazi during the uh, a bunch of white Dutch South Africans. And... Uh, a lot of them people became prime ministers of South Africa later, like uh, Vorster, I want to say, was one of them. He was part of this little pro, uh, pro-Nazi Afrikaner group down in South Africa. And uh, Vorster, I think, was also in turn as a Nazi sympathizer. But by the 70s, Israel, uh, like, Israel was also, you know, with the U.S. against the the, any left-wing government anywhere would ever pop up and everything so like they seen south africa as another uh a white country that was you know surrounded by hostile forces as they as they would put it just like so they they found like common cause with them and even like borster the first uh like who's called like the architect of apartheid i think it was him or maybe it was verwood i think it was verwood he said uh that Israel is an apartheid state just like South Africa. Hmm. And, and Israel even invited some of these guys who were interned as Nazis, like Borster, to Israel on like diplomatic visits and things like that to like strengthen ties in the Wait, 70s. So Israel invited Nazis. Yeah, the South African prime minister in the 70s, like Borster, uh, he was interned during the 40s, a Nazi sympathizer, part of like a pro Nazi group in South Africa. Once he became prime minister, Israel found common cause with South Africa because they're both fighting black people. They're both fighting anybody that's progressive in any way. So they linked up and uh, they invited. There's pictures of uh, Borster, the former Nazi sympathizer in South Africa, whining and dining with like the I forget who was the prime minister of Israel. But, yeah, they 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 were linked and like Israel supported South Africa's apartheid system and they supported Israel. And it was a. There's a book. This book right here called uh, "Black Liberation of Palestine Solidarity" by Lenny Brenner. Mm -hmm. It it talks about uh, apartheid Israel or apartheid South Africa and Israel's collaboration a lot in there. That's a that's uh, Lenny Brenner. He wrote the uh, the book about the Nazis collaborating with the uh, with the. Nazis and Zionists collaborating during the Second World War too. What what about um, the sentiment of African Americans, uh, as you know, or Blacks in America, as far as you know, once once we kind of I guess understood as a community what was happening in South Africa. What 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 was our response here? Uh, I mean, like most of the like progressive groups in America, like. Uh, <clears throat> so I mean, we're against apartheid in South Africa, obviously. Uh, but then you had, like, SNCC was against it, for instance. Uh, I mean, Martin Luther King Jr., like, every, every pretty much prominent. You couldn't be, like, pro-Black and American and say you support, like, South Africa. That's, like, yeah. But uh, there were, like, some entertainers and things like that who, because South Africa – Basically, there was like a cultural boycott where like entertainers that were conscious and things like that were like, we're not going to legitimize this nation by performing there the same way as people do in Israel today. A lot of performers don't uh, perform in Israel or when they do perform in Israel, they get like boycotted and things. So it was a similar thing. And you had people like Percy Sledge, uh, Ray Charles, uh, Eartha Kitt, things like that that would go over to apartheid South Africa for a paycheck. And even uh, Rhodesia as well, uh, 
now Zimbabwe, and they would uh, perform for all white crowds, uh, but go out of their way. Like these people were like rich. They didn't need to like, I've heard people say like, oh, well, they was just, you know, making money. I'm sure they performed for all white crowds, in segregated America too. But like, if you're, if you're a performer in the South and America and you're from there and you perform in front of an all white crowd or something, that's not the same as like going halfway across the world to, right. you know, I don't know. It's no, I different. agree. What, and didn't, didn't um, Eartha Kitt, didn't she like talk about that or something in an interview where she kind of doubled down on her stance? Uh, I don't know if I saw an interview of her like doubling down, but there's a lot of like written things I've read about it. Like mm -hmm. for instance, yeah, this Gerald Horn book Dumb. called, uh, what's it called? From the Barrel of a Gun. Mm -hmm. It's about like uh, Zimbabwe and America and how America supported Rhodesia, the same way it supported South Africa. But he talks about in there how she was one of the performers that was really loved in Rhodesia and would visit Rhodesia. And when she went there, <clears throat> they would give her the status as honorary white, where she uh, would be able to stay in all white hotels. Uh, and she got the same status in South Africa. It was a thing they would give foreign performers if they were willing to sell out and like play in South Africa and legitimize it like as a token of their appreciation for like not boycotting them. They were like, oh, we're, we're not only give you money, but you can stay in the, the whites only areas and everything like that. So and when she, when Eartha Kid went to Rhodesia, uh, she got kicked out of a theme park, but her little daughter, they let her stay or something like that because her daughter looked white or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, the next day they like apologized and invited her back and gave her like a bouquet. And we're like, we're so sorry. We didn't realize you were honorary white. Uh, for the trip or something like that. <laughs> that's crazy, man. It's like a, it's like some sociopathic type of like, you know what I mean? To we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna make you an honorary white, and the, once we make you an honorary white, this is gonna come with these perks, and you're gonna be good, even though yeah, I just that's just crazy. Um, as so, what about the resistance? Um, as far as uh. South Africans to apartheid um, because you know we hear often about Nelson and Winnie Mandela mm -hmm. uh, going to prison. Um, but what what was the you know because they don't like to the, they 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 kind of gloss over like any type of like real rebellion because it's not in their best interest to show examples of that. But like have you like what do you know about um you know any type of efforts against apartheid by the local South Africans during that time. Yeah, no, like when Nelson like first went to prison, he was involved in like uh like a lot of a lot of like revolutionary acts that the government labeled as terrorists, like bombings and different things like that. So like he was definitely revolutionary. I mean the ANC had a whole armed wing called MK that uh that that did a whole lot of like armed struggle against apartheid and uh <clears throat> and there was even other groups besides the ANC, like the PAC, there was a, uh, and then when BCO came up with the with the, the student movement, the black conscious movement, there was a lot of different like uh, groups and people struggling against apartheid down there. And uh, even like uh, communist groups and things like that as well, they were allied with the ANC. Like there was some uh, like whites that even even whites down there that was like, linked up with the communist parties and the ANC, like Joe Slovo, I know, for instance. But, uh, <clears throat> uh, yeah, I'm, I forgot, I got off track. What was I saying? No, uh, you were uh, just building, like, on some of the, uh, like, uh, you know, resistance movements that were fighting in, yeah. uh, against apartheid in South Africa. Yeah, so, like, <clears throat> so, yeah, there was definitely a lot of resistance in South Africa. Not, not only there, but when you study South Africa, you have to study uh, Namibia mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and Angola as well, because those are all intimately linked. Like South Africa ran Namibia pretty much from the early 1900s on uh, after like the Germans lost in World War One. <clears throat> the League of Nations was like, all right, South Africa, you take Namibia too. So that's a huge swath of land that was also mm. uh, colonized. So even in Namibia, they had their own groups like SWAPO. And then you get to Angola, who was a Portuguese colony after the Portuguese pulled out. South Africa tried to extend apartheid up there. So it was a whole war. And a lot of the reason uh, apartheid even ended and Nelson got free is because of the war in Angola and the uh, 
effort at the people of Angola and MPLA, along with like the allies in Cuba and Fidel and everything, was able to defeat <clears throat> uh, South African militarily. And that's what kind of like led to the downfall of apartheid in the late 80s, early 90s. But so, uh, so Fidel had his hand, Fidel Castro had his hand in helping to free South Africa from apartheid. Yeah, because uh, basically Angola was, had been a colony that for hundreds of years. The Portuguese came there in the um, probably the 1400s, right. not the early 1500s, but they had been taking slaves out there forever, uh, set up an apartheid colony, basically. And by the 70s, Portugal's, like, the country of Portugal had a fascist leader uh, itself. So, like, it was a fascist state in Europe that was exporting that to Angola, and there was a long, like, guerrilla war down there. And <clears throat> when these different factions started popping up, one of the the factions that wanted to take over after the Portuguese left, because the Portuguese, uh, they had, like, a revolution where they overthrew the fascist dictator in Portugal. Mm -hmm. And so they were like, we're going to stop colonizing now because we're different now or some shit like that. And uh, they were like, on this day in 75, we're going to leave. And Angolans, y'all can do what y'all want. And so... <clears throat> that's cool and all, but there was like three different uh, rebel movements at the time. The MPLA, which was like the the socialists, had the mass support. There was UNITA with uh, Savimbi. There was <clears throat> allied with South Africa, apartheid South Africa. And then there was the FNLA with Holden Roberto that was allied with the CIA. Wow. So like MPLA was obviously the, <laughs> the better solution. So Fidel and them gave a whole lot of support, sent like uh, tens of thousands of troops, military, uh, doctors, everything. And both in the 70s and all the way up to the 80s, they fought like active war against South Africa. And South Africa uh, was never able to over overthrow the MPLA and uh, the Cuban-backed troops. So they eventually, it, it drained them, you know, militarily. A lot of white people in South Africa was like, oh, because they had a draft and shit. Because South Africa only wanted white people in the military because they couldn't trust, you know what I'm saying, black people with guns and shit. So like, right. and they're already a minority. So all these white parents are like, oh, my son got killed in Angola. I don't like this. So there was like draft resistance among whites in South Africa. And they kind of like, it, it kind of was coming to an end by like the 80s, early 90s. And that's when they made a deal like to let Nelson out and all that. And so when that happened and they let Nelson out, Nelson Mandela, and uh, a lot, and you know, he became the leader of the nation, right? And a lot of people saw that as not really being a hit, like, they saw that as, that, like, how can that be real, right? Like after over 25 years in prison, you're let out and then made the leader of a nation that was just extremely racist uh not too long ago like what what are your thoughts on that yeah i've definitely heard uh like a, a lot of south african people i talk to they kind of see nelson mandela as kind of like somebody that kind of like sold out the cause a little bit but at the same time still respect him for like the struggles and, and the obviously at 27 years of prison and uh and i've even heard khalid muhammad talk about how like you, you don't get let out of prison like that unless and then put in place a power like that unless there's some kind of plan and there's some kind of agreement. And part of the negotiations to end apartheid, the National Party who I was talking about, that was uh, the main Dutch Afrikaner party in South Africa that took over in the 40s. They had a whole series of negotiations with the, uh, the ANC, like behind closed doors with uh, like even I think the president nowadays, Cyril. He was part of the talks. Nelson was part of the talks. And a lot of these top ranking uh, white national party leaders like, uh, uh, what's his name? The one that just, he's still alive. Did he just die? The clerk? I don't know. I don't know if he just died. He might have passed recently. Not sure. But yeah, so they had a whole series of meetings. And during these meetings, they were basically working out like, accommodations for like okay we'll let you be president nelson we'll let the anc like formally take over control of the government but we're not giving up none of our property you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. we're not giving up the control of the diamonds we're not mm -hmm. giving up you know what i mean like right. y'all can vote now y'all can uh come into town and shop at the stores but like the, the power relations are going to stay the same and that's part of like the the negotiation so he came out of that with this rainbow nation like let's all just coexist and get along 
but part of that coexisting getting along is allowing the white people to stay mm. uh, economically like dominant and everything. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things a lot of people criticize about that, uh, the whole negotiation. And even during the negotiations, it wasn't like all white people was even like cool with that. Cause even though they kept all the power, there was a strong, like like a big contingent of far right white people, the uh, AWB Nazis and all kind of like, like there's literally Nazi groups in South Africa, white people. I don't know why they don't just go back to Europe, but right, right. <laughs> like <It's> crazy, <laughs> like all about white power in yeah, South. Yeah. <laughs> it was they was really they was thinking that the, the National Party they were calling them sellouts for not being racist enough and like even going <laughs> to sit down and talk with these black uh, groups and things like that on any kind of negotiations. But uh, but yeah, there's yeah. a there's a good documentary about the negotiations. Yeah, what's it called? Uh, I think it's called The White's Last Stand. If you search, like, White's Last Stand South Africa on YouTube, you'll probably find it. But it's it's got, like, I think last time I seen it was in, like, multiple parts. So it might be, like, part one, part two, part three. But it was on oh, YouTube. yeah, it's called uh, Death of Apartheid, The White's Last Stand. Yeah, it, it talks about basically the negotiation process between the National Party and the ANC okay. and the far right agitation that was trying to stop the negotiations and whatnot. And there was also black groups that teamed up with these far right uh, elements basically, cause they didn't want to, uh, they didn't want to part that in either. Like in, uh, hmm. like I said earlier, there was Bantu stands. Mm -hmm. So like apartheid government, the whites would set up puppet leaders in different areas. Like you can be the king of the Zulus, you can be the king of uh, the people in uh, Bop and shit like that. So those dude named Ngope in this area called Bop uh, in South Africa. And he was like the leader of Bop and he didn't want to give up his, you know, he was, he was running shit over there. Like, even though he was under apartheid, like they didn't really come into Bop and, and fuck with his, his little system he had set up. So he was cool with it. So he teamed up with the AWB and these far right groups to try to, uh, postpone the ending of apartheid and things like that wow and in that documentary it talks about that too okay okay now so you know like here in america obviously um we have a legacy of slavery jim crow and uh you know uh, mass incarceration just anything that you can any institution that uh, has been here obviously has roots within roots that show and prove um, how America really feels about us, right? Like, um, and we see remnants, whether, you know, like how Kwame Ture, how he talks about, how he talks about uh, individual racism and institutional racism in his book, Black Power, where mm -hmm. <clears throat> individual racism um, you know, you can do something to me that might be considered a hate crime and, and you know, you could possibly go to jail for it. But institutional racism, you can't really prove, right? Because you have to prove, be able to prove intent. And uh, with that said, obviously, we see that element, those racist elements within all of our institutions in America. Now, in South Africa, now, post-apartheid, would you say that they're still dealing with that same type of thing that we're dealing with here in America where apartheid is over, but the remnants of apartheid and the institutional racism that uh, apartheid created still exists? Yeah, definitely. Like, uh, like I was saying, with the ownership of the land, like 70% of the land is still in the hands of like <clears throat> the minority white population who... I don't know what percent of the population they are, but they're vastly outnumbered. And uh, <clears throat> yet they own all the land and the majority of the poor people in South Africa are still gonna be black people. All the, the billionaires, the diamond mines are still owned by the Oppenheimers, you know what I'm saying? Like, and uh, and even a lot of these apartheid, ex-apartheid policemen and things like that, they had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission where they just kind of like, uh, a lot of people just, they decided not to go forward and prosecute the crimes because, you know, it was in the past, whatever is going to move on into the new future and all that. So there's still like a whole lot of uh, a legacy of, of racism. And, and even and that even goes down to like black people, them, like ourselves, like especially in like what I've seen in South Africa, 
there's a whole lot of xenophobia against other black people. Yeah. Uh, against like did they have some issues with Ni- with Nigerians coming down there? Yeah, they're they're like uh I see I see it on Twitter and, and things like that, but they try to like blame Nigerians or Zimbabweans for like all the crime in South Africa mm. and like act like that's the issue. And if it was just I even seen a post uh of somebody in South Africa saying like we need the apartheid police to come back for the Nigerians or something like that. Wow. It's it like, they sound like ADOS of South Africa. Yeah, I, I've seen them link up. They like, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's like a push out there with the first movement or something. Like that. <laughs> I've seen them showing solidarity uh, a while back. Uh, yeah, um, it's like, and, and like you said, it, it's the same with a- ADOS, whatever, uh, F- FBA, like, it's the same kind of mentality. It, every society where like white people have taken over control and had control over like the education and like, been able to like basically brainwash people into a certain way of thinking you you see like the people themselves fighting against each other divide <laughs> like malcolm said divide and conquer is like the number one strategy of like white people and like every book i read about any kind of like anytime any european group goes anywhere that's when the first thing they do is try to find one group to set against another group and while they just count money at the top just sitting there yeah and you know that's kind of leading into what i wanted to ask you about Next, um, I read uh, this week, I read actually um, Malcolm X's diary from 64 uh, with uh, Ilyasa Shabazz and her boy. And it was his diary, you know, he, he, he built with, um, you know, while, I mean, while in the Middle East and Africa, you know, he built with some of everybody where uh, W.E.B. Du Bois's wife, he built with, uh, Puerto Rican freedom fighters. He built with Kwame Nkrumah. He built with uh, President Nasser in Egypt. He built with the head uh, Prince Faisal of uh, uh, Arabia. And um, he obviously began to become like really international. And, um, you know, in these, you know, he would do a lot of interviews when he was over there and he would be asked to speak at uh, like, like Ibadan University and other uni- and other universities in West Africa and even in believe in Egypt and you know being interviewed like he was with Maya Angelou down there like you know it was like a lot of things going on and the movement had an international component to it you know uh, a pan african com- component to it right and um my personal thoughts are Martin's, Martin and Malcolm's, uh, like movement towards making this an international issue is what got him killed, right? But when whenever we talk about that, and then we look at we fast forward now to uh, 2022, and you got Ados and FBA, right? Uh, and it started off with them saying, you know, this is about reparations, right? And then you, they start putting American flags in their bio, right? <laughs> and then, come, and then uh, you know, commercials with, with black families wearing like stars and stripes and waving flags, like to Yvette Carnell saying, we don't have a culture here. African-Americans don't have a culture. I guess she's never read, you know, Africanisms in America, but it's a whole nother story. But when it comes to that, right, and the xenophobia that we see within these groups, when we know people like Kwame Turi, Marcus Garvey, uh, Malcolm, you know, all, mostly all the freedom fighters that came before us, uh, even the Panthers, you know, um, they had an international element um, to us. Nick had an international element because they would even comment on things that were happening internationally that involved uh, marginalized people. But now we get into a point where in the name of reparations, so to speak, right, we have to rep our lineage this and that well I, i'm not tripping i don't have any um i don't have any like i i'm actually i'm proud to be descendants from uh enslaved africans who were here on this soil but it doesn't mean that i'm not proud 
to be a part of the rest of the diaspora and my and my lineage going back to the continent, right? Like I'm a, I'm I'm proud to be just I'm proud to be a black person regardless to where that geographical location I was born in happened to be. Um but with them, you know, saying that this is about reparations and lineage, but then getting to the point where like they have so much disdain for Jamaicans and black Cubans and Haitians and especially Africans on the continent. Like, what are your thoughts on just that whole thing as far as them saying it's about reparations, but the whole, but it seems like they spend more time in these diaspora, in these diaspora wars. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's serving the function of what like, the people behind it intended to do because i mean you look at the the founder of the ados movement at least uh yvette she's like a board member for some right-wing think tanks mm -hmm. uh things like that whose whole goal is to push anti-immigration stances so like they just found a way to package it so that black people would like possibly be receptive to it by uh by shielding this like anti-immigration message in some kind of like uh on the face of it, like revolutionary pro-reparations movement. And, and yes, I mean, it's just like all the black leaders that, that uh, I mean, most of the black leaders that I study that I like look up to and things like that, like Malcolm and Kwame Ture, stress the fact that like unity is one of the most important things. And even like people like that were definitely- Our unity is like an atom bomb. Yeah, exactly. It's just stronger than, a, than an atomic bomb. So like, uh, I mean, I don't know who, like, I don't like when they try to appropriate Black, like, leaders either, because, like, you can look at all the people they try to appropriate, and they got a speech saying the exact opposite of everything. <laughs> Malcolm being people. one of them, bro. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I, I'm not, I feel like that movement, ADOS movement is more like a pan-European movement, because <laughs> they want to assimilate into whiteness. Like, Yvette has literally said, like, the goal is to become normalized into whiteness, she put it. So, like, how did other groups normalize into whiteness, like the Italians and the Irish, is they stepped on other black people. Like they became mm -hmm. the policemen or the overseers, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. To like show that they, they're down for the pro-white cause. So like, I feel like ADOS is a movement trying to show they're down for this American cause by, by stomping on other black people, Caribbean or, or African or whatnot. And uh, in the hopes that like white people be like, oh, these, they did a good job. We're going to give them some, like some reparations, but like, that's not how, that's one of the mistakes Booker T. Washington made was overestimating the the kindness of white people. Like if we just play the respectability politics mm -hmm. game, maybe eventually, you know, they'll cut us a break, but like they ain't going to like history show. No, like that's not how it works. So it's a futile like exercise. Yeah, no, that's, that's real. Um, it's, 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 it's strange, right? Because If black immigrants in America make up 5% of all incoming immigrants to this country, right? And then we saw, um, I wanna say even under Obama, but I know um, under uh, Trump where, you know, those, like those uh, immigration laws where, you know, uh, Muslims and Haitians and, you know, just people from black and brown nations uh, were like denied entry where people from certain European nations were allowed to come. Well, I think we even seeing that with Ukraine, right? Like, but um, what good is it to, so they say, they say these 5% of black immigrants from the Caribbean and Africa are taking all of our jobs, which sounds like some right wing stuff that yeah. like white nationalists say about blacks and mexicans right like they're taking all our jobs so now they're, they're repeating this white nationalist talk but black people only make up five percent of the immigrants coming that that come over every year where's the disdain if if those five percent are are taking your jobs what about the other 95 percent and what about the European immigrants? Like, why don't they ever have anything to say about them? It seems like when it comes to white supremacy, like they they don't have anything to say about Because I feel like they're trying to to get a, a space within that mm -hmm. that world. So like, uh, 
Yeah, I've never seen them talk about like Ukrainian immigrants or nothing else. It's all about uh, Yeah, I don't know. And, and they're, they're like talking about they're gonna call ice on people and shit like yeah, that. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you too. Like, that's crazy. Like, like it's getting out of hand that they are actually talking about calling ice on immigrants. And and somebody asked one of them, like, like, how are you, how would you even know that they're an immigrant? And he's talking about like asking them for their papers and like what? Like, it doesn't make any sense, man. That's like I don't know, bro. Like it's 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 like some Steven from Django type stuff, man. Like, and I've even seen them like try to act like it's like a revolutionary position to like call ICE and like it and like it's like working with federal law enforcement. It's not a revolutionary position. (laughs) You can't justify that. That's the police, man. (laughs) It's crazy, man. They even lock up. uh, There's Black Americans that have been imprisoned by ICE. Cause mm. for, for not being able, like I seen a guy, I wanted to say like his parents. What did what happened? He he was born in America. I don't. Maybe his parents were Jamaican or something. But he mm-hmm. was definitely like a Black American. He was detained by ICE for like years or something like that. Wow. And there's even been people who whose parents are from America too, who have who are Black Americans have been detained, detained by ICE over some like technicalities and things like that. I've seen people that come home from doing tours of duty in the military and get detained yeah. by ICE. Yeah. It's crazy. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> crazy. Um, and so uh, we definitely enjoyed the conversation with you, uh, Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, and apartheid in South Africa. Um, if you can show, like, you know, for those that are, like, interested in these topics, I know you're, you're a bibliophile, man, and you got, you got a lot of jewels, man. If you can, uh, just show, you know, the people some of the books that, you know, that they could... Uh, and, and and research themselves. Yeah, uh, I got some over here. So like, <clears throat> for Booker T. Washington, definitely, and for Du Bois, this book, uh, it was edited by John Hope Franklin, mm. uh, but it's about like the great black leaders of the, uh, of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. I would definitely recommend this. It's got a lot on <clears throat> du Bois, Washington, their differences, and other people like that. Okay. Uh, another one, Du Bois's speeches by mm. Fulner. These are the speeches from 1890 to 1919, but there's also another volume of like <clears throat> his later speeches. Mm-hmm. They're also good, but definitely on the on what Du Bois's stance was and Booker T's stance was at the time of this book, you can read Du Bois's speeches himself. No. Nope. Uh, Definitely Booker T. Washington's biography. Uh, yeah, and also Souls of Black Folks by Du Bois are good. Uh, this book right here is called, this is by, was edited by Benjamin Quarles, but it's, it's called The uh, the Negro American, A Documentary History. Wow. I just, I just found this the other day at a bookstore. It's, wow. It's pretty good, though, but it has a whole lot on, uh, it even has like the Atlantic Compromise speech in there. Oh, really? It has the whole it, speech in there? Yeah, it starts from West Africa and goes like all the way. I think it was published in '68. I want to say. So What's that called again? Uh, the Negro, Amer- uh, the Negro American: A Documentary History by Benjamin Quarles, who uh, wrote a lot of like uh, the Negro in the Civil War and mm-hmm. different books like that. Uh, him and Leslie H. Fischel Jr. are the editors of it. But it's a really I just found it the other day. Uh, and then Black Power by Kwame Toure. There's a whole chapter on uh, Tuskegee and Booker mm-hmm. T. Washington. <clears throat> and then on apartheid in South Africa, this book right here talks about Cuba's role, helping liberate nice. Angola. Nice, Cuba uh, and Angola. Yeah, Cuba and Angola fighting for Africa's freedom and our own. That's uh, a good resource. Definitely the Gerald Horn book on Zimbabwe from the barrel of the gun. Uh, South Africa. This one's good on the the Diamond Oppenheimer family in South Africa, South Africa Inc. It goes into detail on their control over like the diamonds down there. And it's crazy like how like something that is supposed to symbolize love between two people is fucking comes from enslavement of black people yeah like the i heard 
that most of the British crown's wealth either it comes from uh, slavery in the Caribbean and the diamonds in South Africa, that's where like the whole European or British family's wealth system comes from. Mm. And uh, this one's called Black Power in South Africa. It goes into a lot of the different movements and things, especially in the uh, in the 70s with the Swoto uprising and all that. And, uh, yeah, it's pretty much most of the ones on that. Uh, yeah. Yes, yeah, like, hey man, I I definitely appreciate you for coming back, man. Uh, and congrats on on you know doing well in law school, man. I salute you and I appreciate you for coming through and dropping jewels on everybody and you know what I'm saying showing some books that that now we gotta go and get and, and add to our library. So I appreciate you for coming back, bro. No problem. Thanks for having me, bro. No problem, man. You have a good one. You too. Peace. Peace.